I fundamentally believe that the way we have education set up right now and our thinking and process behind it is not conducive to supporting who Black families and Black children are. And we have to really take it, I believe Black families and Black children, we have to really take education in our own hands and revamp it and rethink about it for ourselves. And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, guys, gals, and non-binary pals to another episode of All the Above, the show that gives you an unstandardized take on education. I'm Jeffrey Garrett, one of your co-hosts, and I've been a middle and high school principal and a high school social studies teacher. And as always, I'm joined by... What up, family? It's Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. I'm a high school history teacher down here in the Los Angeles area. This is year 17 in the classroom, the virtual classroom this year, of course. And um, this here, of course, is all of the above, your home for news and analysis of all matters pertaining to our world of education. If you are watching us on YouTube, shout out to you. We hope you enjoy what you see and consider giving us a thumbs up if you do. And shout out to uh, Mr. Lee on Twitter, at Mr. Lee Books, who recently has been posting about watching us on the YouTube version after having discovered our podcast in the streaming podcast apps in the first place. And if you are listening on the go through those podcast streaming apps, definitely consider giving us a five-star review. We would very much appreciate that for sure. Jeff, man, we are back. And um, I regret to inform you, we only have about a day left of Black History Month. So if there's any Black history that you are trying to learn or explore, Jeff, you have one day left. Otherwise, you got to hold it till next year, man. Oh, just one day, huh? I got to put yes. away all the books and, uh, you know, it's back. It's back to um, pack them up. regular history tomorrow. Is that, yes, is that indeed. what it is? Yes. Um, well, you know, I'm sure many of our uh, more conservative friends will be happy uh, that cancel culture will be over uh, after tomorrow and, uh, you know, freedom will, will reign once again and truth uh, will, will be taught again in the schools and they won't have to opt their children out of, um, you know, the, the, the horror that is um, Black History Month. Exactly. Know? This critical yes. race theory stuff, Jeff, I don't know if you've heard about uh, that, but it's, it's yes. run amok. Yes, yeah. It's uh, it's all part of the cancel culture, man. It's all all part of that, I, I heard. Yes, obviously. <laughs> but here on yes. All the Above, of course, um, we don't need a special month just to look at humanizing conversations and humanizing histories around Black folks and, and other marginalized populations. We do this all the time. Jeff, so what's on the agenda for this episode? Well, Manuel, we got a good one today, as usual, for folks. And, um, you know, this one I'm really excited about because uh, we we have actually been working on getting these two guests on our show for like five months uh, yeah. because they're both incredibly brilliant people, scholars, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, folks doing fantastic work on these issues in the field and their, you know, parents and, you know, dealing with all the hecticness of um, of pandemic life that I think uh, all parents are going through. Um, but today we are going to be digging into the fascinating issue of the relationship or lack thereof uh, between black families and America's public schools. And to help us dig into that uh, really timely and, and meaty conversation, we have two amazing people. We have Dr. Tanika Orange, who is a professor at UCLA. Um, and who is a former principal of uh, a school that really prioritized a lot of um, Afrocentric thinking and, and approaches to education. And uh, we have Dr. Tunette Powell, 
formerly of UCLA at the Parent Empowerment Project, now uh, the Director of Equity, Inclusion, and Community at uh, the Merman School, which is an independent school here in Los Angeles. So um, two incredible folks. They they co-host a um, uh, essentially a, a podcast on Facebook Live dealing with these issues of uh, of schools and black families. And um, they're gonna they're gonna come here and and bring some truth, man. It's it should be a powerful discussion. You definitely don't want to miss it. Dope. Um, I think there's a connection issue maybe with the Zoom. I didn't quite hear what what university that was that they <laughs> they worked with. You know, man, I just started looking down on my computer. Thought you thought you thought we had to cut there for a minute, man. <laughs> I didn't realize you were just bragging about your alma mater, your twice alma mater, uh, the University of California at Los Angeles, uh, home mm. of the Bruins, uh, home mm. of Center X, uh, doing fantastic things in uh, all realms of education. Shout out to. Um, to all of our, our people over there at UCLA and, and Center X. Yeah, indeed. All right, can't wait for that conversation. But up first, we have our Do Now, where we take a look at recent headlines in the world of education. Stay tuned. All right, folks, now it's time for today's Do Now. Let's take a look at headlines around the world of education. Jeff, how are we gonna do the Do Now today? Well, Manuel, we got a good one for folks today. We, um, you know, in the spirit of uh, collective literacy, uh, we got a lexicon today, man. We're going to talk about uh, some vocabulary, get into some, some key terms, and uh, talk about some stuff. Nice, nice. Let's get that vocab up. All right, Jeff, what's the first term for today? All right, Manuel, first term today is, it's a, you know, for a, for a former government teacher like myself, it's a beautifully nerdy term. Reappropriate. Mm, Reappropriate. Now, you know, I know there's use of that term with regards to removing funds from one area and placing them in another area. But Jeff, this is um, 2021. And I think you are sneakily trying to bring us to a conversation about defunding the police, Jeff. <laughs> with your liberal wokeness. Is that what you're doing, yes. Jeff? Yes, this is this is part of the woke conspiracy right here, Manuel. Uh, you are correct. You are correct. Um, I, you know, personally, I appreciate this slo the slogan, defund the police, because it's not actually a slogan. It's a very clear statement about, about yes. what we should be doing. And uh, it just so happens that the uh, school board uh, here in the Los Angeles Unified School District agrees with me, agrees with us. And that is what they have done. So let's get into it here. Um, this story comes to us by some solid reporting from Melissa Gomez at the LA Times. And in a major overhaul of the Los Angeles School Police Department, the LAUSD Board of Education uh, has just recently, in mid-February, approved a plan that cuts a third of its officers, bans the use of pepper spray on students, and diverts funds from the department to improve the education, in particular, of black students in the district. The approved plan will cut 133 positions overall. That includes 70 sworn officers, 62 non-sworn officers, and one support staff member. However, it does still leave the department with 211 officers overall. The unanimous decision comes after a year-long campaign by student activists and community members to reimagine the school police force, which they maintain disproportionately targets Black and Latino children across the district. Now, this measure provides funding 
for what are called school climate coaches who work to promote positive school culture and address implicit bias at every secondary school across the district. It will also provide staff to support uh, the achievement of black students uh, at schools as well. Now, board member George McKenna, who happens to be the board's lone African-American member, voiced strong concerns about it during debate, saying that parents expected us to have safe schools, and if you think the police are the problem, I think you got a problem yourself. Now, interestingly enough, board member McKenna did actually vote to approve the final measure in the end, uh, but interesting statement there. Um, this uh, move by Los Angeles follows several other districts across the country that have made similar decisions, like Oakland and Portland, Oregon. And, um, you know, this, this decision is being roundly celebrated um, by, a, by a chorus of advocacy groups, including Black Lives Matter, the Community Coalition, Inner City Struggle, and the California Association of Black School Educators, um, saying that it will bring about 11.5 million dollars in an effort to promote black student achievement. Now, uh, Manuel, I'm sure there are plenty of folks out there that, uh, you know, still may feel that this measure doesn't go far enough, but this is certainly a significant step in the effort of reappropriating funds from police to non-policing student-centered support measures. Um, very curious to get your take on this um, and hear what you got to say. Yeah, certainly. So I'm certainly in favor of this. I should clarify, I don't work within LAUSD, so I don't really know um, the day-to-day -day experiences of teachers and educators and students within LAUSD schools. But the high school that I work at, we used to have police on campus and several years back, we no longer had police on campus. And I believe that was a decision by the local um, police department to you know, reorient or reappropriate their own funding. But in any case, it's been totally fine without police on campus. In fact, we never needed them in the first place. And when I think about this vote here to reappropriate these funds, the people who are against it, and if you go to this article on LA Times or really anywhere where this was reported and scroll down to the comments, you will see that the people who are very much against this clearly have a very negative deficit view of these young people in Los Angeles. They, in their, in their uh, way of seeing things, these are young people who are dangerous, young people who are quote unquote thugs and, and uh, without police, who's gonna keep the school safe? There's gonna be kids pulling out knives and weapons on teachers and all this craziness. And it's clearly not that, it's clearly, clearly not that. And to see that the funds are being reappropriated to support efforts such as de-escalation tactics. I saw something in there about um, using some of the funds for more counselors and, and nurses, like this is common sense to me. It's, it's really common sense. If a school is supposed to be a place where students feel welcome, where they feel valued, where they feel that they are seen as, as complex human beings with tons of promise and potential, why would you wanna greet them with police officers and why would you wanna have pepper spray there? Now, of course, people could point to outlier incidents where police were needed in this case or that case. I'm sure there's probably parents and students and a few teachers out there who are pointing to individual incidents that have happened on their campuses and think, thankfully there was a police officer there, this and that. But the thing about that is like those are, outlier incidents and at my school sites, for the years that we have not had police officers, I can't think of any time where anybody on our campus wished we had had a police officer. And ours is a campus that has a long standing quote unquote bad reputation. And it's like, no, we, 
We don't need police officers to deal with young people when most of the conflict that you might encounter with young people is stuff that could certainly, certainly be de-escalated through the right practices and, and the right uh, embrace of, of a positive school culture. And just in thinking about police officers on campus as a tool, educators are highly overworked, under-resourced, and well, schools are highly under-resourced, generally speaking. So if there's a school where there's not enough counselors, not enough administrators and teachers are overburdened, if there is a police officer there, of course, they're going to lean on that as, as a tool for dealing with this conflict or that conflict. You don't know how to start really embracing a positive school climate and school culture and finding new ways to address issues if you're still relying on the old tools. So we have to remove the old tools and build new ways of dealing with whatever problems might, might surface at, at school campuses. And this is a great plan in my view of it because it's not totally getting rid of all the uh, police presence. They're being moved off campus like a third of the staff is being cut, which is great. I, I saw in the article 20 resigned just off the notion that they're being defunded. Fine by me. And they're still around in, within the yeah. district. Like they're not like, it's not like something's going to happen and nobody's going to be around to respond. So it's not something that's going to open the doors to like just chaos or whatever people have in their, in their minds about these schools. And I bet, I venture to guess most of the people who are really, really against this, they probably went to schools that didn't have police there. A lot of these folks are like coming from a place where they're not experiencing school in the same way that a lot of our, especially black students in, in Los Angeles are experiencing school. If you haven't had to cross a police officer on the way to, on the way to class and have that police officer ask for your ID and ask, ask you know uh, ask where you've been this and that whatever and harass you, then like you can't possibly know how stressful and how how traumatic being at school can be for a lot of these students. One of the one of the uh, results of the surveys that LAUSD did to see how the community and how students and parents felt about police in the first place showed that uh, black girls are the most at least in this survey the most untrusting of police on campus. And that tells me that they have had plenty of encounters with police that were not positive. And we've seen so many videos from schools across the across the country of black girls being physically, physically brutalized by police officers in other districts and across across the nation. So yeah, move them out, use those funds for more counselors, more coaches, more supports so that we could have a positive climate where students don't have to navigate past police to get to class. Yeah. Yeah, uh, appreciate all of that right there, Manuel. And I, I want to also say I, I really applaud the school board um, at LAUSD for, for making this move um, and for making this move with a unanimous vote. And here's why. Because it from a, from a purely elected official politics standpoint, this move is actually a lot more complicated than it probably seems. From a moral and educational standpoint, it's an easy decision. We don't need a massive police force in our schools. Um, the, you know, the issues where sometimes a police presence might be required or might be important for safety at a school, which I can talk about in a second, um, we don't need school police hanging around schools all day doing that. Okay, that's not the reality. So um, here's why that why I say I applaud the school board for making this move and why I think it does take some courage. Right. Um, the, the article points out 
the district did a survey, right, across, uh, across the district of parents and of students, and you cited some of the data about student perceptions of, of safety. What's interesting is that parent perceptions of, state, of safety and their belief that school police contributes to safety is actually higher than that of students, right? And so there are significant numbers of parents um, who who believe, now I believe that they believe this kind of erroneously, right? They believe this because they've been conditioned to believe that police equals safety, right? And not actually making that decision based on any type of data about what really happens in schools um, or any type of larger sociological data about like the school to prison pipeline and those sorts of things, right? Um, but the reality is the people who vote, <laughs> right, uh, in this, um, you know, in this city, the adults uh, who send their kids to school um, are not so clearly in favor of this position. And if you break it down by, you know, by race, um, there are actually majorities of several demographics that believe that school police actually make schools safer. Right. So this does take some political courage, I think, on the part of um, school board members to have made this decision. I'm assuming that probably explains some of George McKenna's thinking that we um, uh, you know, mentioned earlier, um, even though he voted to, uh, to actually approve the measure in the end. Um, but I just wanna say, I'm really glad they did this because I don't think it was actually one of those things that was like a foregone conclusion it was going to happen, one. Um, and of course, behind all that is like the pressure that was applied from all the activists, community groups, student organizers, like they are the reason <laughs> that the political yeah. calculation changed yeah. so that the board voted this way. So I also want to make sure to, to root that compliment in them. Um, now, I will say as a former principal, um, as much as I support defunding the police, as much as I believe this is the right move, also, there's a there's a harsh reality, which is a rare occurrence, but it is an occurrence sometimes in schools where where in our currently imperfect society, a police presence can be warranted at a school site. Right Certainly. now, I had, you know, some instances as a principal where like, you know, two families that had been beefing come up to school right at dismissal and want to like fight right, you know, right outside the school with like 20, 30 adults. Right. Now, this is an extremely rare occurrence, right? But when something like that happens, you, you know, the tool we have in our society currently to help ensure that that altercation stops and help, you know, ensure some physical safety for all the students who are walking around currently is police. I think we could probably do a better, you know, we could come up with a better solution, but like there is a real actual physical danger in that moment. And so... You know, in those kind of situations, a police presence can be helpful to ensuring, you know, some some physical safety of students. Right. Um, so I'm not I do think like it's it's not just like, oh, we get rid of the police and everything's all good. Right. Um, and there are times where as a principal, I did call the police for, you know, for, um, you know, incidents like that. Um, but the reality is those are rare. And we don't need police hanging out at schools all the time to prevent those few times when something like that happens. Um, and the reality is also what you said, there's a lot that schools can do to prevent, to mitigate against, to address yeah. in other ways. The huge swath of things that currently 
school police are being used to intervene yeah. on that aren't actually law enforcement matters, right? That are immature kids doing immature things that need like a talking to from an adult and a consequence that doesn't involve handcuffs and, and a criminal record. So um, props to the school board, props to the organizers who push for this. And, you know, yeah, we've got stuff to figure out, right? To still ensure safety on campuses. But we don't need an army of school police to do that. That is exactly right. We don't need a whole army for that. And yes, there are outlier incidents, as you pointed out. Um, and I think so much of the criticism of defund the police in the general sense, whether it's about schools or about cities and municipalities, is that, you know, folks, uh, it's just all the fear mongering. What's going to happen when someone bursts through your house and does this, that, whatever? And it's all the fear mongering. It's like, well, Using that logic, we should just lock down everything, right? Because there's always right. a possibility of something crazy happening. But I would rather live in a society that that uh, leans in towards freedom and humanization than policing. So hashtag counselors, not cops. Hashtag schools, not prisons. We don't need uh, police all up in our schools enforcing school rules and making students feel like they are in prison. Like that's just not not the look that we need. So shout out to the board for courageously doing this. And and I get it. Maybe there's room for for more action because they there there is still a, a massive uh, police force as far as uh, L.A. Um, school police is. But you know, step by step. And I think this is a giant first step. And then if all goes yeah. well and all goes right, perhaps in a couple of years, um, we could look at the continued funding towards school police and see what to do about that. Indeed. Indeed. Well said. Uh, what's what's our next lexicon term for today? All right, Jeff. Well? Next term for today is oasis. Mm, mm, like uh, a, a vision of, uh, of a beautiful tropical paradise when you're thirsty and, and walking through the desert, you know, uh, like that type of oasis. Yes, exactly. Except not that at all. Um, in this case, this is Oasis, all caps with two eyes. This is a gamer tag of a okay. former student of ours who used to help out with the show when we used to produce this in the studio. We had a crew of students and some of them are gamers. One of them in particular, Carlos, shout out to Carlos, uh, oh. big time gamer and Oasis is nice. his, I think they call it gamer tags or something, but um Anyways, we're not, we that, bring we're that, not up. that cool, Manuel. We're not that cool. We are not. I'm definitely, I'm, I know very little about gaming. Yes. But um, we know he would very much appreciate this story. So, Carlos, if you're watching, he, he's not watching. But, anyways, the story is for you. This is a story about esports at the high school level. We get this story courtesy of EdSource, an article written by Ali Tadayan, and he reports that although school athletics are on a timeout in many places because of the pandemic, a growing number of school districts have turned to organized video games to provide students the team sports experience that they're missing during this COVID-19 mess. Uh, several California districts actually from Los Angeles Unified to Sacramento Unified and a whole bunch in between have joined or formed esports leagues in recent years. In these leagues, students compete in online video game tournaments and matches against other schools. Some schools are tying computer programming and STEM education to esports, and some colleges are even offering esports scholarships. Supporters say esports can be a gateway for students to reap the benefits of team sports. One district, for example, West Contra Costa Unified School District, unanimously approved, or the board of that district unanimously approved, $71,000 contract using Federal CARES Act money with the California League of Esports, which is a 
partnership launched in September between education professional development provider, California League of Schools, and technology education provider, Mastery Coding. The idea here is to bring esports to the district's 14 middle schools and high schools. With the addition of West Contra Costa Unified, the California League of Esports serves eight school districts and 21 high school and middle schools. As a whole, esports industry was valued at $159.3 billion in 2020 and is forecasted to reach $200 billion by 2023. So Jeff, what, what are your thoughts about this, this, this growth of esports leagues in middle and high schools? Yeah, man. Well, okay. I, I feel like I need to start here with admitting my bias, okay? Which okay. is to say the last time I was like really, really, really into video games was playing Tecmo Super Bowl in like 1991, 1992 Whoa. on like the original Nintendo, like like straight up two button NES system. Okay. Yeah. So I was never personally like super big into video games. And there was definitely just a window when we went from like, you know, Super Nintendo, Sega Genesis to like Xbox and PlayStation that I just never, I never made the jump. Okay. So... I am not a like I'm not a big video games person. I don't you know, I don't it doesn't connect with me on a personal. You're level. old. We get it. Jeff. Okay? You're I'm old, old we get it. and I am somewhat biased against video games as something that a person would commit massive amounts of their time and energy into. That said, that said, I am wise enough in my old age to know that I'm just old and crusty in that way. And I need to stop <laughs> judging the young people and let them be who they are and appreciate them for what they they do and what they cultivate in their own talents and in, in their own way. And in that regard, I feel like great, especially during the pandemic. I mean, talk about something you could do that's COVID safe is, you know, is playing esports. So this this hopefully for at least a subset of kids is filling what I would argue is the single greatest gap that we have had during this time of pandemic schooling with distance learning and hybrid models, which is the absence of social connection for kids, right? And the absence of, you know, a sense of belonging to a group, right? A peer group. And so, and, and frankly, <laughs> doing so in healthy, constructive, pro-social ways, right? Um, which I guess my, my assumption is these esports leagues do help cultivate that. I'm not aware of, you know, big scandalous things happening in these, uh, in these particular uh, online settings. Now, uh, so on that level, I feel like great, I support it. What else are we going to do during COVID? You know what I mean? Like props to them. And I think it's great that we support young people in doing this. I do have a little bit of a worry, Manuel, and I, I'm not sure if this comes from my crusty old manness or if this comes mm -hmm. from just a legit concern that um, if what happens post pandemic is like a shift away from actual physical sports, to a deeper investment in esports, I worry because I do think there's something uh, just fundamentally different about online engagement and virtual engagement versus in-person engagement. And also there's just the physical, you know, athletic component of it, right? Which is, it's good for you to play sports. It's good for you to run around. It's good for you to do push-ups and, you know, train for your, for your sport, not only uh, in terms of like healthy muscle development and, you know, uh, dealing with obesity and other lifestyle health challenges, um, but also 
in terms of, uh, you know, the endorphins that exercise is released that helps mood regulation, emotional regulation, and those sorts of things. So, you know, I think great for right now, but I would hope that when we are on the other side of this pandemic, that this doesn't represent like, oh, a whole lot of kids who would have been like on a volleyball team are now playing virtual volleyball, if that makes sense. It does make sense. And I, I, I definitely hear that. I- I should start by saying I'm definitely in favor of schools pursuing this because I think anything um, that a school could do to help particular students feel more connected to school, I'm all for it, whether it be robotics competitions, uh, sports, of course, chess club, and in this case, esports, for sure, I'm for that. And at first I was thinking, well, a lot of these students probably are already gaming at home. So part of me wondered, like, what's the benefit of doing it, like, under the, you know, the name of the school or whatever. But, you know, you're going to meet other students from your school that you might not have already known, especially, you know, some of these larger, larger campuses. And, and why not form a team with them at your school under the supervision of uh, an adult and have a, a safe way of engaging and in, in doing all the collaborative stuff that comes with being part of an esports team or esports league. So I'm all for that. I, I have no problems with it. I do. Part of me. I, I agree with you in the, the sense of this as a p- possible replacement for sports. And I don't think anyone's arguing that it should be a replacement for sports. But the article does quote several district officials pointing out that since sports aren't there this year in a lot of places, this could be a something that helps keep that team vibe going. And I just wouldn't put it in the same league as sports. Uh, I think the the team aspect of it and collaborating with others and, and competing against other schools, we see that through a whole bunch of, I mean, speech and debate, Model UN, whatever. We see that in, in, in a lot of ways already. I don't think gaming is anything on the same level as like being part of actual team sport because of the physical aspect of it that you pointed out. I'm not saying that as a good or a bad thing, but hearing these things called esports, the sports part of it, ah, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe that's just me. Maybe that's just me. No, but that's, that's in any case, point. I'm all for it. I'm all for it. Like it's not like let the kids play and let there be a school person there, like, you know, helping make sure it's positive and make make sure it's it's contributing to their overall growth and overall health. Like, why not? Yeah. Let no, I, that's a great point. I really appreciate that nuance on language, man. That it would sit better with me if it wasn't called sports, if it was just like, oh, this is like some kids are in the chess club and they play that game, and some kids are in, you know, the e games club and they play those games, right? Like but yes. uh, yeah, yeah, that it, it sits better in my mind that way. So yeah. Yeah, for sure. But um, you know, interesting. I'm sure this is only gonna grow. I saw that there are many colleges engaging this. I, I recently purchased some new UCLA gear and some of the shirts that are being offered are like UCLA gaming. So I guess there's like a esports team or something at UCLA or, or about to be one. I don't know. So yeah, might as well, might as well introduce that in the middle and high schools too. I'm for it. But that about does it for today's do now folks. All right. So up next is our seminar. We're going to be talking about black families and the school system. You definitely don't want to miss that. It's going to be dope. Stay tuned. All right, folks, welcome to today's seminar. We are so excited to have you with us, and we have two incredible guests here today, and I could not be happier to welcome, for the first time, to all the above, uh, just two incredible people, two incredible scholars, thinkers, 
advocates around um, all issues pertaining to black families and education and racial equity in education, um, the wonderful Dr. Tunette Powell and Dr. Tanika Orange. Uh, welcome to all the above. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Glad uh, to be here. <laughs> yes, indeed. Well, let me tell you a little bit more about our guest, folks. Um, Dr. Tonika Orange is the director for the Culture and Equity Project and is the assistant director for the Principal Leadership Institute at UCLA Center X. Her work focuses on providing professional learning opportunities to educators on culturally responsive and sustaining pedagogy and supporting educators in developing the skills necessary to facilitate conversations around culture and race. She is a former math and science teacher and principal at a K-8 school here in Los Angeles that was specifically designed to serve standard English learners and English language learners through culturally, linguistic, and responsive pedagogy. Her commitment to education spans over 25 years. She has served as a program manager in the Chicago Public Schools, a senior program officer here in uh, Los Angeles for the California Children and Families Commission, and she has received her doctorate and bachelor's from the University of Pittsburgh and a master's from Teachers College and UCLA. Um, most importantly, Tanika is the mother of identical twin daughters who are in 10th grade here in Los Angeles. Welcome, Dr. Orange. Um, thank you, thank you. Our second guest is Dr. Tunette Powell. Um, Dr. Powell is the Director of Equity, Inclusion, and Community at the Merman School, an independent school in the Los Angeles area. She is also a researcher and part-time instructor um, at UCLA. Dr. Powell previously served as a director of the UCLA Parent Empowerment Project. She and Dr. Orange together co-host a monthly Facebook Live show called Conversations for the Soul. Dr. Powell describes herself as an activist mama whose work is guided by the phrase, nothing about us without us. Dr. Powell earned her PhD in education with an emphasis on urban schooling at UCLA. She is a scholar of kinship, village engagement, trauma, racism, and knowledge whose current research centers on school-induced collective trauma, addressing and repairing harm in education and the experiences of black families. And like I said, two incredible dope guests today. We are so excited to have them. Um, and I'm gonna kick it over to Manuel for our first question. Yeah, we got UCLA in the building. We got black excellence in the building. We got scholarship in the building. Very excited for this conversation. Thank you both for being here on all the above. And we wanna start with just the reality that the, the relationship between black families and the public school system has been tenuous at best. And you both have a wealth of experience and scholarship between you. Uh, we're wondering if we could start with just perhaps um, hearing you explain a little bit about the history and context um, that brought us here to where we are now. Yeah. Yeah. And thank you. I, I mean, I am so excited to be here. I think this question of how we got here is a very interesting one. It's a it's a long answer, but I want to kick us off and I'll obviously give a short end and love for uh, Tanika to join in. But I think we need to make sure that we're starting with the fact that public schools was a freedom dreams of, form, of formerly enslaved black people. We have to start there because you know it was black folks who were fighting for public schools. You know, originally schools were only thought to be for white men, right? White wealthy men. And so I think we need to start there because 
Um, we often lose that in the narrative when we talk about who black parents are and who they are not. And there's a long history of black parents. Um, even if you go, you know, pre-colonialism and pre-being in this in this country of of this beautiful relationship between education and black folks. And so um, if you go around and you think about, you know, let's catch up to, you know, when we were thinking about um, desegregating schools um, early on, right? If we think about that early on, um, when we thought about desegregation, um, there were already issues where we did not integrate anything. We desegregated and simply what we said was, we are going to have white teachers teaching other people's kids, right? And because of that, we already saw the early signs of mistrust, of disrespect, um, of stereotyping and a lot of prejudice and racism and anti-blackness. And, you know, right after desegregation, we already saw that black students were the most suspended students in the country, right? That data is so old. It is as, it is as old as desegregation. And so even then when black parents spoke out, they did not, they were not listened to. Right. They were never considered. And if we think about lots of things that have happened, the way that we have framed uh, black homes, if we think about many things outside of schools that impact schools like the war on drugs, um, just for an example, we have a history. Right. Of saying that black black kids don't matter and black families don't matter. And I want to bring Dr. Orange into this conversation because I know that this has been a lot of her work, but I want us to think about this history um, that there's always been this idea of. Um, or I should say this narrative of who cares about education and who does not. But I think that um, that's been a white a whitewashing of black parents history because uh, public schools were, was our idea in the first place. Yeah, I mean, and I think like Dr. Powell said, I mean, the, I mean, the history is pretty clear. And I think what's happening right now is when you ask the question of how are they serving students or how do they do or do not serve black children, I believe that because of the history that Dr. Powell talked about, there hasn't been a reconciliation with that, the, the notion of black children have, are still not being served, even though they were the originators in black families of what education should be and how it should be centered and how they should be centered in these spaces. And so there hasn't been a reconciliation to this day about what does it really mean to support black families? What does it really mean to educate black families and for what? I mean, the education for what? And so when she, you know, Dr. Powell talks about the whitewashness of, of the way our whole policies and systems and procedures that take place in school, they are really still centered with us. Um, it, it, we're just an afterthought. And mm -hmm. so supporting black families in school spaces to me means that there has to be a reconciliation with the past. And there is no reconciliation with the past. It's like we want to continue to move forward in schools and in education without dealing with what has happened in the past. What are what and and, and you can't do that without a reconciliation of that and to think about how to move um, um, in the future. So yeah, I mean, I, I, I do believe, let me just say this, that there are always there are good schools and there are good educators that are doing the best that they think that they can or that they know to support black families and try to move um, educational spaces that are very warm and open and, and really using education as a practice for, for, for change for black families. 
But it's very hard, again, when you don't have a reconciliation as, as far as the system to think about what has happened in the past, what really did desegregation do and the effects of desegregation to this day, and how it's still perpetuating inequities and anti-Blackness inside of school spaces as we, as, as we continue to move through, through to the future. Yeah, I, I very much appreciate you bringing that up, this, you know, the kind of notion of yeah, really the need for some kind of repair to happen, given, you know, the, the historical damage that has been done. And, uh, you know, I think we are seeing certainly in many districts across the country, some growing momentum around trying to better engage uh, districts with black families. Um, but I would love to um, to get your take uh, and maybe Dr. Powell, we can start with you on, you know, what so what's it going to take to do that effectively? And, um, you know, actually, is that even possible in our yeah. current context? Yeah. What is it going to take? You know, as I hear you ask that question, I can just hear a little Kim in the background saying money, power, respect. Right. Mm. It's the key to life. It's the key mm. to this repair. Um, and I break that down. I'll, I'll break that down very briefly. But, you know, Gloria Latin Billings, a scholar that I absolutely love talks a lot about the, uh, the education debt, right? And how there is still a debt that is owed to black families, right? In the educational space and, you know, also by context of us being in the United States. And I feel that we have to be able to make those investments, right? We have to think about what does reparations mean in education, right? And so again, like that's when I talk about when I say money, I say that power because we have to be willing to concede power that that continues, that power dynamics continues to show up. An example would, you know, I can just give you a very small example is how, you know, when there's an event going on at school, there's no polling to see what time works best. It's like, we're having this at 6 p.m. and, you know, show up. And then if you don't, right, it comes with a narrative that you're not engaged. Um, and so we don't have that reciprocity that we need to go back and forth. I, I, I wish I would just text Tanika and say, be here at this time. What? I got all this stuff on my calendar and in my schedule. Then we have to see what makes the most sense, right? And so again, that's like a small thing, but that's one example of how it is in schools, right? That there is not this back and forth conversation. There is a power dynamic that says that, you know, um, I know very little and schools know everything that they need to know about our kids. And so we should just be happy, right? We should just accept that. We should move on these things. And so, um, and there's no get to know me in that. Right. But when the power dynamics is that way, there is no obligation for us to get to know each other. There is no obligation for us to build authentic relationships and have real trust. Right. And so everything becomes very transactional in schools. And then when it comes to this idea of respect, I mean, you know, I've been working with black parents for a long time. We're both black, you know, black mothers. And so we've been in this work, um, not only professionally, but very personally. And I always every time I think about the experience and people say, well, your degrees may save you. You know, they think because you got a PhD that someone is gonna treat you different, you know, and, and maybe there's some, you know, variation there every now and then, but people by way of me walking in as a black mother, I have been treated in certain ways where it's like, you know how you're being perceived when you walk in a room. You know what I mean? That you're automatically being perceived as single, as on welfare, I mean, I've heard all of the things and people, you know, when you have to, you have to throw that out there where it's like, oh, oh, doctor, you know, and then they want to know those things. But why should it, why should any college degree matter? 
right? Why should where I live matter? Why should any of these things matter? I ought to be able to walk in a space and have that respect. And it's just not the case with black families, right? There has been narratives that have, that are deeply embedded, you know, in colonialism that have, that continue to be reproduced every day in schools. And so until we disrupt those things, I don't think we can move forward. And I think where we have seen, right, there are good examples all around us, as Dr. Orange was talking about earlier, there are good examples, but we have to think about money, power, and respect at a systemic level if we want to shift, if we truly want to shift, or if we want to have a few good examples and a lot of bad apples. So I love the money, power, respect. Can I just say something? I see Jeffrey getting ready to jump in to ask another question, but just let me, just let me throw this out there. Um, the money, power, respect. I, I, I love the phrase that you just um, that you stated, Tanet, because I do believe that even when they're when systemically, when we decide to do some initiative inside of a school district around for blacks, um, black families and black students, that the way black families receive it because of the lack of respect that we have had for so long is that we receive it as very proactive. I mean, very reactive. It's not proactive. It's just another thing that they throw in as an afterthought. And I think it, that just shows the lack of respect for families. That just shows, again, understanding that it, it's it's that the power that we really need to kind of shift and change something systemically is not there because the system has, it's been reactive to what we need and not proactive. And I think that sentiment just goes continuously just digs deeper and it digs us deeper and deeper into a hole. And so we're consistently asking, so what is it that we need to do to support black families? How do we need to help them? We'll just do another initiative in the district and that should be enough to get them where we need to go. And again, it's getting them where we need to go inside of a system that already has pushed them aside and has already been branded that either you are, are going to assimilate or you will not fit in. We dismantle and take away everything that means means that's true and dear to who you are. And there, there's the issue of respect right there. We give you very little money, even though we give you these initiatives that we say we put very little support behind them. They're not as big as all the other initiatives that they have in schools for other for other folks and, and, and other um, populations. And then we expect these miracles to take place. I don't know. I'm like, that. I, I don't have a... Um, I wish I had a magic wand or a magic bullet to say bullet to say what is it that we need to do. So, but I do believe that I, I think for me it would be a dismantling of the way we think about education in itself. And I know that's not where we are. We have to deal yeah. with what we have to deal with. But I uh, I fundamentally believe that the way we have education set up right now and our thinking and process behind it is not conducive to supporting who black families and black children are. And we have to really take it. I believe black families and black children, we have to really take education in our own hands and revamp it and rethink about it for ourselves. I think this is the reason why a lot of black families have have decided to homeschool. There's a surge of black family homeschooling now because why go back to that? It didn't work to begin with. Right. It's, and so why would I go back? And can I chime in just for a second? Because I think what, you know, I, I mentioned Gloria Latin Villains and I had a conversation with her once where I asked her, what does it take to begin to pay off the education debt? And I do agree with what she laid out. Some of these things are outside of the context of education as well and work in tandem with education. So I think it goes back to what you're saying about reimagining. But she said um, free college for all black for all black students. She said quality health care. Right that they don't, uh, and, and universal healthcare that you do not have to pay for. And the last thing she said was a quality teacher. And that is incredibly important, that if we can think about those things, 
I stand on that, right? And I think that comes when we're talking about those take direct investments. It takes that money and it takes the shifting in power, of course. And we think about the power dynamics in a lot of our schools and a lot of our districts. And then that respect piece goes with it because if you have a quality teacher, they're not gonna strip your child of all the things that make them them, right? They are going to be culturally responsive, right? And culturally sustaining. And so I do think that, you know, there is a, there is, there is some sort of a roadmap. Are we willing to invest in that way? Are we willing, but I think in order for us to be willing to do that, we have to talk about the debt in the first place, right? And I think it's what we said in the beginning is that I don't think we talk about um, repairing harm enough in educational spaces. We want to move on to the next initiative. We're going to just add one more thing to that too. (laughs) Are we we willing to invest in that? Just the fact that if we were really willing to invest in it, we will look at even into our teacher education programs at higher institutions and think about how we support and not just recruit black teachers, but how we think about um, um, bringing them in. What does it look like to center them in spaces? What does it look like to make sure that we are supporting them once they leave higher education and institutions to support um, centering of black children and families inside of spaces? And we find funding to pay for them. We yep. would make the 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 um, the the stance that it is just this important, and yep. to do that, then we put the money behind it. So this goes back to you in your conversation with um, Dr. Ladd's Billings, which is then we would fund that. That means they that's should be able to come if if it was important to us. That is what we would do, and that's not what happens. And we we can talk about all of the. Prop 209 and all of the issues that go behind that of not earmarking money for just specific groups, but there should be, if we were deliberate and intentional about doing what we say we want to do and not just be reactive like we usually are. Yeah. Well, Manuel, before I kick it over to you to uh, to ask the next question, I do just want to mark this um, this day in history. Here we are in uh, Black History Month uh, 2021. Uh, where uh, the the great wisdom of Lil Kim uh, reframed forever my understanding about uh, what matters in terms of the relationship between school and uh, and black families. So um, thank you, Dr. Powell, for that uh, that little gem today. Um, but Manuel, uh, go ahead with the next question. Yeah, for sure. I mean, big facts all over, and we love facts here on all of the above, and we're struggling. When I say we, I mean the system is struggling to even have an honest conversation about this education debt in the first place. And then we're in the midst of a global pandemic. And within the context of our discussion here, the pandemic has, of course, disproportionately impacted Black communities. We see disproportionate rates of infection, disproportionate um, vaccine uh, withdrawal, not withdrawal, vaccine um, Distribution, that's the word I was going for. And clearly we are facing real struggle within within the black community, in particular during this pandemic. So we're wondering, you know, when you take that and, and of course the, the challenges with internet access and, and everything else that comes with trying to uh, maintain in the midst of a pandemic, we're wondering if y'all could share how this pandemic has impacted this, this ongoing relationship between black families and school systems. Go ahead, Dr. Pa- I mean, I just there, yeah, I just, okay. I just started last. I yeah. mean, I just ended the last conversation. Yeah, sure. So yeah, I think it's interesting, right? And there's this because we have there's this relationship between black families and education, and then there's the way that we've structured society, right? And the way that 
we have not invested even outside of education um, and those who, who need the investments most. So I think a lot about right now about food insecurity, right? And so I think, you know, you think about some of the early work of the Black Panthers who fought, you know, for uh, meals to be a part of the educational process. And you think about others and you think about the role that schools have played, um, particularly public schools and being able to provide those meals. And so I know that right now, and a lot of the work that we've been doing um, with Black families that there is, right? A lot of food insecurity right now um, that has kind of been um, plagued by the pandemic. I think in terms of relationships and the educational experience outside of schools kind of being those hubs of like supportive childcare and food, um, I think things are pretty, or probably a lot similar. If you had a good teacher before, you have a good teacher now. If you didn't, you didn't before. If you had trust in your school site and in the school leaders, you probably still do now. Um, and if you didn't before, you probably don't now, right? If there was engagement on multiple levels happening before the pandemic, that's probably how it is now, right? Because we took a very the very same system and just changed the platform, right? Instead of it being in a you know in a school site where we drove to or rode bikes and buses to, you know, now um, that's just at a computer, but it's the very same system, and so um, you know, and and that breaks my heart. Because I was, you know, I spent, I've, you know, before the pandemic, I spent a lot of time in some of these schools where I, there are some amazing schools that I absolutely love. Have to always give a shout out to Baldwin Hills because I think that um, in South LA, I think they've done some amazing work um, pre pandemic and right now in this pandemic. But I think about some of the other schools that are within a one and two mile radius of that school. And my heart absolutely breaks for those kids because there was not a good experience then and there's not a good experience now. And so, and that's across the board, right? When you look across school type, when you look at how it's going, it was, how was it going before? And that's the heartbreaking thing for me because um, it's always this, the haves and the have nots. If you had before the pandemic, you have now. And if you had not, that's where we are. Yeah. And I, I don't think there's much to say. I mean, I agree completely with that. I mean, it's the haves and the have nots. And it goes back to just like little Kim again, money, power, and respect. If you had it before, you have it now. And if you, you know, and if you didn't, you're back, you're right in the same boat that you were before, um, before the pandemic. I will say that there, again, if, if we were really truly interested in doing what we needed to do for families, we would change things. We would change like the negative, um, all the metrics that we're asking teachers to continually collect around students that really mean nothing right now because there's so many other things that are just important for them to focus on. Like I don't, you know, as, as a as as a as a principal and a teacher, the last thing I want to do is collect data that is meaningless because my students are too busy trying to survive every single day. Parents are struggling at home, you know, to have five kids on Zoom and work at the same time and help a kindergartner do their do, do a lesson. Like taking away like these negative um, metrics that don't mean anything would yeah. be would be would be something yeah. that would be important to do if we had a commitment to really support students and families and especially those that are marginalized the most, which in in yeah. for for us in Los Angeles and, and across the country happen just to be you know black folks are always in the middle of that we're yeah. always there so it's nothing new. And so it would be great. And I think it would be interesting to lessen the load on students. Like if we were truly interested in thinking about how to support black oh. families and black students, then we would lessen what the load looked like. Like it could, it should, it could be days that all I do is sit down 
and talk to my students and, and say, no, yes. all we do is just shoot the breeze. That's all we do. You playing a game? What are you doing? What you doing over there? I mean, we could just African-American language all day, every day and talk about what's on TV. It could be whatever we needed to do, but to lessen yeah. the load yeah. and lower the affect level, it would support black families and it would support yeah. students and it would help teachers also who happen yes. to support those folks. And so if yes. we were deliberate and intentional about it, then that's what we do. And if we cared, we, we, and so anyway, if that, that's what we would do if we care. Oh, and, and I, I feel that, you know, I want to piggyback off of this, you know, I, I, as a parent, this is something that means some, a lot to me because I have one in sixth grade, I have a fourth grader, and then I have a, a kindergartner. And so my uh, youngest two, they go to a school that I absolutely just admire. Um, they have black teachers. They've had black teachers. You know, it's been such a great experience. They have those moments where it's not about the work and it's about connection, right? It's about the whole child. How is the child doing? Is the child well? And then my sixth grader goes to a space where he has no black teachers and everything is just, I mean, he's like a robot. Just turn the work in, right? Lack of engagement. And I struggle because, you know, like, I don't want, you know, you don't want to be the one where, oh, her son doesn't turn in his assignments and, you know, he doesn't have good grades because that's what it's about. But then I question myself and I always have this moment of, but is my son well, right? Is he whole? I'm raising a highly gifted black child who is just in there, you know what I mean? On the device from sunup to sundown, trying to turn in assignments that never engaged him. And so we're, this is what we're grappling with right now. That again, everything you said, Dr. Orange, if we care and if we mean what we say, we would think about what does whole child wellness look like? What does it look like to tap into the gifts of these kids in this pandemic to speak life into them, right? What the struggling is to be a, you know, a ease to the families, right? And a ease to the teachers, because that is absolutely what would happen. But that's not the system that we have right now. And so I'm left, you know, battling, do I want my child to be creative and engaged? Or, you know, and, and have D's and F's on a report card? Or do I want him to be a robot and have A's and B's? And so that that's the struggle. Yeah. yeah. I so appreciate um, the perspective you're both both bringing up here today. And, and I think our, our final question actually, like, gets right into some of the, the issue that you're, you're naming, which is, you know, in the kind of education equity space, if you will, right now, there's a whole camp of people who are pushing hard, even to the point of filing lawsuits against states or districts uh, to push for the reopening of physical school in parts of the country, like you know, here in much of California um, and certainly here in Los Angeles, that have been in, uh, in distance learning um, since last March, right? And, uh, and yet, at the same time, what we're seeing in a lot of districts is that black families have not actually demonstrated uh, a high degree of interest in returning to physical school. Um, so in cities like Chicago, um, cities like Oakland, like Detroit, we're seeing a third or fewer of black families saying that they are actually interested in returning to physical school. Now, you know, there's been a lot of speculation about, you know, why that is. Is it a lack of trust in the school? Is it a lack of trust in 
public health measures? Is it just an exodus for, you know, schooling from home to, you know, to have a more loving, enriching environment, as, as uh, you both mentioned earlier? Um, there may, and it may be some combination of all of those things or other factors, but um, it, it's certainly, you know, an, an interesting time where folks are making an equity argument about the need to open uh, a physical school at the same time as black families are expressing uh, suspicion, at least, about the prospect um, of reopening physical schools. So I would love to hear um, you know, your, your take on this issue. Should we reopen schools? You know, should, should families go back? And uh, kind of you know, what you think that the ramifications of this prolonged period of distance learning are um, you know, for, for our, our communities going forward. And uh, maybe Dr. Orange, we can start with you. So this is a tough question for me, actually. Um, I don't know. I, I think Jeffrey, just like you said, there's a whole host of things that I think go into making the decision to go back to school or, and reopen it or, or not. I'm skeptical as a black parent. Um, and I think black families have every right to be skeptical. I mean, we can go back and think about just like the whole notion of post-traumatic slave syndrome. Just, you know, you keep your kids close to you when you feel that there's something in danger, danger. And school has been a dangerous place for black families and children. So it's like, I don't know, I don't, I don't trust it. They didn't do good beforehand. So what makes me think that now by sending them back that I need to trust them all of a sudden again, I'm just gonna keep my kids as close to me as possible. And that's what we typically have done. And I, and, and I struggle as a parent myself, like what's the benefit of me actually sending them back? Like I, I recognize the benefit of the social emotional piece of it and the social relational piece of it. But I also think about what, again, that benefit, but the, the other benefit is that do, do schools really care enough about my black child? Do they just want them back in there because it's just a seat? Do they care enough to think about really what the health ramifications are? Uh, I don't know because they didn't, I don't believe that they cared about black, my black children before that. So why would I, why, why would I subject them to that now? So I'm torn. And if I'm torn and I feel I'm privileged because I know the education system and, 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 and understand how to move through it, of course, other folks who, who's, you know, don't have the same experiences around education that I do would feel skeptical. So I am definitely torn by it. I also think that um, I'm thinking about what's the cost benefit. And it's again, it's these metrics that we put on it. So sending students back to school to do what? So that they can um, learn, um, I don't know, something that they will, um, something something that they're gonna fit, forget in about um, three months as soon as they leave school. Like what's the benefit of it? What are they getting when they go back? One of my daughters came up to me and she said, um, uh, mom, what's the purpose? They don't teach us anything that we really need to know in school. I mean, what, what am I going to do? What about the life skills? This is truly what she said. She said, what about learning about interest? What about learning about buying a home? What about learning about um, how to do banks and stuff like that? She said, do banks and things like that. She's like, we don't learn. <laughs> we don't learn anything. And I said, no, you're right. Um, we have to teach you all of that here. So even for them and my kids are, um, Again, they go to they go to a great they go to university high school. They love going to the space because of the a number of black students that they have there, and um, 
And again, they, they do well in school by the metrics, but I also think what's the benefit of sending them back when they themselves don't even see the benefit when they go? Like, is it gonna hurt them because they missed the last four months of school? Not too much, I don't, I don't have faith in it that way. And, I, and, and so again, it's a hard question to answer um, because of the state of where black families are with education to begin with and why we should be skeptical of it. Um, yeah. to, you yeah. know, well, we should be skeptical of it. Yeah. This is hard for me. It's hard for me. Mm-hmm. You know, I have a five-year-old, a nine-year-old and 11-year-old. And so this is probably one of the hardest questions for me uh, because my kids actually want to go to school. Right. And I have seen that. And, and we'll talk about what, what they will do when they got to school, but I have seen Um, the issues that my oldest son from having to do school in his room all day, what that's done, you know, being one in a room because they have to be isolated so that they can hear what's happening in their class and not being able to interact with anybody your age um, and not, you know, where you are going through developmentally, you know, in sixth grade, you know, I love middle school. It's my favorite time, but you know, they're going through a lot in middle school. Right. And so just to not have anybody else who's going through that, and to always be in those little spaces of isolation has been hard, especially on my oldest son. With that said, in the context, um, and I, uh, you know, of how Black families are feeling, um, and I'll say that I haven't seen a survey uh, yet where Black parents have overwhelmingly said they want to go back. I think um, what Black families need, we need childcare, right? That's what we need. We need childcare. Um, kids need forms of interaction. Might not be school. Right. I'm just being very honest that they need forms of interaction. They need release. They need outlets. They need healthy ways to be able to connect and see their peers might not be school the way we have it. Right. Because I've spent a lot of time thinking about that. And so, um, again, as a country, we're going to have to address the child care issues in this country Um, and education. Right. As something very separate that needs a lot of work as well. I think in the context of education, when you're seeing these numbers, it is interesting because I think before this point, we rarely asked parents, right? If they wanted their kids to go to school. It's kind of been something forced upon us, right? When a kid turns a certain age, you go to, they go to school, you go to work. For the first time, things are in reverse, right? Everybody's at home. Um, kids are at home. Parents are either at home or on the front lines, a lot of, especially a lot of black parents, but they're being asked, right? What do they want in this moment? And we have a moment where we need to unpack. This is the importance of that qualitative research to support that data because we need to understand what is it about. And I think we will see the levels and layers where it's, um, you know, distrust in America, right? That we don't trust many of the things that's going on. Exactly some of the things that we've said about, you know, um, the vaccine distribution, um, you know, who was a part of the vaccine makeup for some, right? Um, You know, who's getting COVID and look at the jobs that are primarily filled by people of color, right? Who are dying at higher rates than everybody else. So there's mistrust on a universal level. And then when we look at schools, our schools had cops and not nurses. So now you want me to return to the same schools right? and you're going to do what? Right. Right. That you never valued my health. You've always valued your safety and never my health. And so, but see, districts and schools have not put that up front and grapple with that. They have not said up front that we have not done right. We have never thought about the health 
and well-being of people who are, you know, people of color and those who are working class. We have never in schools, we have thought about the safety of those who have the power and that is it. And so we have to have this conversation. And so when I find myself in moments where I say, if school open, my kids would go, that comes with a privilege because I know that if my kids school open, right, the elementary that they go to, the principal is black, the teachers are black, the principal's kids go to that school. So I know that she wouldn't open up doors to a school that wasn't good for her kids, right? But we can't say that everywhere. So my level of I'll send them back comes with a lot of privilege that I never shy away from that I have fought so hard and had the opportunity to search high and low for schools that I felt that it would be safe for my kids to go back. But that's not the reality in this country. The reality is that in Detroit, they didn't even have heat in their schools. Flint don't even have clean water, right? Like this is what we're talking about. And you want black families to send their kids back to schools that never cared about them in the first place. And to me, that's what we have to reckon with, that we have to reckon with the reality that the debt is so much. It is so great. In the same way that there are airlines looking for bailouts and there's all these things, education needs to be asking for that bailout to be able to pay off this debt to black families. And that's how I feel when we talk about it because I am just at a moment where it is heartbreaking to think that, right, that somehow in 10 months, 11 months, that we were gonna go from no nurse and sometimes one, you know, one day a week to now you're gonna have all of the procedures in place to be able to protect our kids. And I think that this is an act of resistance by black families who have always had some form of an act of resistance. There's always been resistance and it's rooted in our history. This is their only form of resistance. And I'm proud of the black families who are standing up and saying, we absolutely do not. I wanna understand more of why that is, but I think that this ought to be a choice that families are able to make. And I think that we need to move away from the politics because the politics of racial equity on both sides is disgusting. No one cared about us before this pandemic. You don't care about us. That's right. That's yeah. exactly right. Mm. That's right. I uh, <laughs> I so appreciate um, your words there, Dr. Powell. And we, we have been talking a lot um, in recent episodes on the show about um, the, the kind of weaponization of the term learning loss uh, as being, I think, exactly what you said, right? Which is um, there's a suspicious number of people using the, the sort of feigned moral outrage about, you know, what about the learning loss um, and speaking uh, presumably on behalf of, you know, black students, low income students, uh, Latino students, marginalized students of all sorts across the country um, who are very new to the conversation about caring about the well-being, the health, uh, the interests um, of, of the black community. And um, so I appreciate you giving, giving voice to that today um, and, and so much more. Um, our two guests, folks, incredible people, incredible scholars, incredible uh, activists in, this, in the world of trying to uh, bring about um, more racially just schools uh, for black students and families. Uh, Dr. Tanika Orange, professor um, at UCLA, and um, of course, Dr. Tunette Powell, uh, Diver uh, Director of Diversity, um, Equity and Community um, at the Merman School here in Los Angeles. Thank you both for joining us today on All the Above. Thank, Thank you. you. All right, folks, that's it for today's seminar. Next up is our Class Dismissed. Stay tuned.
All right, folks, we have come to that time in our episode where it is the end and we have our class dismissed. We'd like to celebrate some of the amazing people out there doing good things in the world, in the realm of education. Manuel, who we got today? Yeah, well, by now, you if you're listening to this or watching, you might have seen that viral video of a professor at Oxnard College, uh, Michael Abram, being um, a real jerk. And I'm, I'm only using that word because we try to keep the show, you know, kid friendly for, you know, the little kid that you might have in the backseat as you listen to this on your way to uh, get groceries or whatever you're doing. Yeah, um, clown, buffoon. All those, uh, all those words. Jerk face. You got a good vocabulary. <laughs> Most of mine are 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 not uh, kid appropriate, but in yeah. any case, bigot. Um, you know, we can we can uh, go ahead, man. Go yeah. Ahead. So he, you know, he was captured on video during a Zoom class, um, just lambasting a, a student who was identified as being hard of hearing, uh, basically accusing this student of not paying attention, of not responding to him, and he's just a real, real jerk. You've probably seen that video by now. Um, and we are not here to shout him out by any means. We are here to focus on the positive of the story or what a, an aspect of the story that, that we were impressed by, which is how the student's classmates advocated for her and how the student advocated for herself. So um, in the video, the professor is basically saying that she's not trying, she's not uh, paying attention, this and that, whatever. And another student in the class who could have just sat there quiet, like all the other students, uh, decided to, to step in. And that student said, professor, she's actually hard of hearing, she has a translator, and the translator goes at a slower pace. So the student is trying to explain to the professor that the student that he is criticizing, it, that she's working on a delay because after he says something, then the translator hears that, the translator translate to this, translates that to the student. So there's, you know, there's a delay. And this student in class is trying to explain this to the professor who decides to double down and become even more of a jerk and go even further into it. And towards the end, um, the student that he is attacking, she explains to him because he says something about like why are you smiling why are you smiling and she says something about like i'm just I, i'm usually in a good mood i try to stay in a good mood and i'm not arguing with you so the the advocate who jumped in and said look professor this student that you are attacking here has a translator and the student herse herself who is experiencing what can only be a really traumatic situation of being lectured by your professor in front of the whole class. This guy's talking about, call your counselor, we'll have a well, individual Zoom, and you know maybe your translator should teach you the whole class. He, he said that. Um, that student, despite the trauma, despite the direct attack on her, um, took what I guess would be considered the high road, and her classmates stepped in for her too, while the rest of the class kind of just sat there, um, probably not knowing what to do. So we want to shout out the student who stood up, and we want to shout out that student who had to had to face this this I, I, I mean this clown behavior, this nonsense from this professor, and um, kept her cool despite despite just the garbageness, the trash that was coming from her professor. So shout out to those students. Again, this is example number who knows what of students being better than the adults. Yeah, That's it. Uh, I, will, I will fully echo that. And also add to that shout out uh, some props to whoever was doing the the translation in the moment. I can't imagine being that oh, man. person. <laughs> and that, having to translate a professor's insult to your student about you 
crazy, man. Totally crazy. So props to all of those folks for, um, you know, for standing up, for putting this out on Twitter so the world could, you know, could engage in some public shame of, of this individual. And hopefully he faces the appropriate consequences out there at uh, Oxnard College. So... Folks, thanks so much for joining us today on All the Above. We really appreciate all of you for your support of the show. And um, please spread the word about All the Above. You can find all of our content on our website. It's aotashow.com. That's aotashow.com. And uh, if you like what you hear, give us that five-star review. Uh, give us a thumbs up or a like. Subscribe to the show on any platform, Twitter, Facebook, uh, YouTube, etc. Um, and folks, also, you can support the show. If you love what you hear, if you're listening every week, this is a two-person operation. Um, you can support us by going to aotashow.com slash support. That's aotashow.com slash support. There are ways there to subscribe and, uh, and help us keep bringing this great content for you. So thanks again, folks. Have a great day, and we'll see you next time.